0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series, Great Faith. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2, as we're going to talk about the body of Christ as being a family. Uh, I entitled this, Finding Your Family. It's really thought about putting it, Finding Your Forever Family. Because we understand that we all are born into families of one kind or another. Some of them are wonderfully functional. Some of them were pretty dysfunctional. Most of them were someplace in the middle that we had highs and we had lows. But all of those things affected us and shaped us. But what we oftentimes don't realize is that when we give our life to Christ, we are adopted not only into Christ, but we're adopted into his family. This body of believers is meant by God to be what he calls the family of God. And oftentimes in our culture, we fall far short of it because we don't have the same kind of pressing necessity that people in many parts of the world have today, that they don't find themselves in that kind of social and relational isolation because of their faith in Jesus. That in many places in the world, if you make a decision to follow Christ, you are driven out of your town, thrown out of your families, ostracized. You're without job, without family, without support system. And you have to depend upon God. And when you find another Christian, there is a connection and a bonding that becomes very deep because you feel that lack We live in a different culture and so our challenge in terms of being the body of Christ is of a different nature. And it's not so much that it's easier for us, it's just different and in some ways it's harder because we don't feel the same kind of press, the same kind of necessity. But what we do oftentimes not recognize is that there's a huge vacuum in our life when we become part of a group of people who meet but we don't become part of the family, and we missed that key word that we're going to be looking at tonight, today, the word together, together. God meant for the church to be something that was experienced together, not individually and not in isolation alone, but together. So we talk about individual relationship with Christ, the priesthood of every believer. We talk about quiet times and getting alone with God. But all of that really becomes a, short, a, a, a problem if it, it doesn't also include coming together as a community of believers and living out our faith one with another. Would you begin, please stand with me as we begin by reading in verse 37, chapter 2 of the, gospel, the book of Acts where Peter has just spoken unto the crowds at the day of Pentecost, and he is concluding his messages. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily all those who were being saved. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask as we reflect upon this passage and the way that you have called us to come together in a family relationship within your church, that your Holy Spirit would give us a special insight and understanding. That sometimes we admit, Lord, we just we can stare at the text and we kind of understand what the words are saying, but, Lord, we don't grasp fully, Lord, what it is that you're saying. That sometimes we feel like we're We may be listening to Mozart, but it's being played on a harmonica, and we don't really appreciate its breadth and its depth of meaning and understanding. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us today. Your Holy Spirit would work with us and work in us and open us to what you want and what you mean and what your heart is all about. We pray for this grace, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When Karl Marx, the father of communism, first read Lusk's description of the life in the first century church, he believed that he had found the secret to fixing the issues of poverty and injustice that had historically, and still historically, permeate human society. It was especially when he read in verse 44 of chapter two where it says all the believers were together and had everything in common from that word "common" comes the phrase, the term communism. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. And then later on, in almost a parallel statement, once again a reiteration, if you will, in chapter four, again describing the church, it says there was no needy person among them. What Marx reasoned was that if he could convince enough people to follow this lifestyle example of the early church, that we could completely eliminate. Poverty and injustice and society would be transformed. But what Marx didn't understand because he didn't have the spirit of God and didn't know Jesus Christ, what he didn't understand is what happened in Jerusalem in 30 AD wasn't something that was planned or organized. Uh, They weren't following some kind of pre-designed template or pre-designed formula for how to live their lives. It wasn't really even the expression of an ideology that they had embraced. What was happening here was something very spontaneous and organic. It was basically a response to what Paul called in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ, when Paul said the love of Christ compels us, the Greek word soneko there that's used literally means to compel, was, means to take a ship and force it into a very narrow channel. In other words, he's saying that when we experience God's love in our life, it has this way of focusing our life, narrowing our focus, and giving us a singular passion and a singular desire. And he said that passion grows out of a realization. He said the realization that he died for us all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, these guys weren't saying, let's form a commune and let's have a community and we'll live in this commonality, some kind of you know, 19th century utopian ranch or living in the styles of say the Hutterites or the Amish or other groups like that throughout history. In fact, I lived, <laughs> I spent the first 10 years of my Christian life living in a Christian commune, believe it or not, which explains volumes to many of you. And it was nice because we all had everything in common except if you've ever read Orwell's Animal Farm where he says all the animals were equal but some animals were more equal than others. And that was our experience that some people became more equal. But the simple fact is these were not people who were forced to share or give away their wealth As Peter Peter would later on explain to greedy Ananias and his deceitful wife, Sapphira, he said to him in chapter five, he said, the money you received for the land, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, there was no pressure on anybody to give anything, to sell anything, or to do anything. This was something that hadn't come through instruction and teaching, but rather as the Holy Spirit began to move in their life they began to respond to the needs that were all around them. And many of them began to say, what can I do to make a difference? And for some, that meant to liquidate their assets. But again, it's so important to recognize this was no imposed sharing or some kind of redistribution of wealth after some kind of socialist ideal a la Marx, Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, and, and Mao. This was something that the early believers freely and independently chose to do as God's love began to not only work within them, but as that love encountered others through them and they saw their need. It was something that was organic. It was something that was spontaneous. It certainly wasn't organized or ordered. In fact, what was happening is Tertullian, the second century church father, would later note about the early church. He said, Look how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. How much they love each other and their willingness to even die on one another's behalf. So the idea of giving your goods to meet the need of somebody else was not something that seemed unrealistic or even unusual. Now historically, many have looked at the unity and the community within the early church and they do so with eyes of envy. Largely because there is in every one of us a kind of natural yearning to be part of a group that includes me and there's no danger that it will exclude me. I think about how Woody Allen said, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. And it's kind of that veiled fear that we all have that we want people to know who we are but we're afraid if they ever do they aren't gonna wanna know us for very long or they're gonna wanna know us at a distance. We see this desire expressed even in TV sitcoms. I was thinking about theme songs of shows like Friends, where the song basically says, when the rain starts to pour, I'll be there for you. Like I've been there before, I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. We hear those things and we see the sitcom of Friends and this you know, unrealistic and uh, impossible dynamic of this group of of middle-aged or young adults living together and sharing together and having this harmonious relationship. And we sit there and go, Even though I know that's not reality, I wish it were for me. Or I think even more the movie, the TV show, Cheers, where the song said, sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. Everybody knows who you are and every time you show up, they're glad you showed up. Not, you know, like sometimes we have visitors from out of town and we go, oh, what are you doing here? We wanna feel like people are glad to see us. They, they welcome us with welcome arms. It's like one time I was in, in Costco with my wife in the evening and I've, we were walking around and, and this guy that's standing next to me he looks at me and says, I know you, who are you? <laughs> and then all of a sudden he says, oh, I know who you are and turned away and walked away. <laughs> I felt loved. <laughs> and that's why I said no <laughs> you know, I didn't say anything but you see each one of us yearns for a place where we are fully known and also fully loved we, we fear being fully known because as Mark Twain said we're all like the moon we have a dark side that we hope other people won't see but it's a wonderful thing when people see that dark side of us and they still love us which is what Christ does. It's God's heart towards us and we yearn for that and we desire that, but we're terrified because so often not, the response we get is from people who say, oh, yeah, I know who you are, and they walk away. We live in that kind of a fear. Oftentimes, and even in family relationships, even in marriages, we live these secret sides of our life that we don't want our spouse, or children, or friends, or family to know about because we're pretty sure if they really understood the dark side of us, the things we battle, they would want us gone. And sadly, oftentimes, the church has used certain kind of strange litmus tests to test certain people and to categorize them. and to essentially be gracious towards some people but not being gracious towards others. This is a, a, something that we are often guilty of. And I would say that not only is this something that we struggle with, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find that community. In fact, the, former, the last Surgeon General under President Obama said that one of the biggest health problems in America today, and I think he was right, he said is an epidemic of loneliness. He said, we live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since 1980s. You know, almost 50% of Americans today in a recent Barner research study said they don't have a close friend that they can be openly transparent with. They don't have anybody in their life that they feel safe that they can just talk to. And for men, it's even worse. Seven out of 10 women will say that they have a close, close personal friend. Only one man in 10 will say the same. In fact, the loneliest and, and the highest spike in suicide is white males <laughs> in their teens or early young adult life is the highest percentage of increase, in, and the number of suicides in our culture has, has just ratcheted up significantly. And we sit back and say, well, what causes this? Well, social scientists and mental health professionals have narrowed it down to a few key factors that I've created my own phraseology for, just for keeping it down. But most importantly, they said it begins with a fragmentation of the family. Divorce, cohabitation, single-parent homes have become basically ubiquitous, Half of the kids in America today will grow up in a home with only a mom or a father and usually with just a mom. And what comes along with it is a lot of difficult financial times and relational neglect. There isn't time for a mom or a single parent to invest in the things their kids. They're striving just to keep food on the table and keep the wolf from the door and just to survive from day to day. In fact, we have what psychologists call a generation of emotional orphans. They have nobody in their life to mentor them. But I love what feminist, or maybe fe- former feminist, Kay Ebling said that she discovered. She said, today I see feminism as a great experiment that failed. She said, many of us, myself included, are saddled with raising children alone. The resulting poverty makes us export, experts at cornmeal recipes and ways to find free recreation on weekends. Feminism freed men, not women. Now men are spared the nuisance of a wife and family to support. The reality of feminism is a lot of frenzied and overworked women dropping off kids at daycare centers. It came with a great promise, but she went on to say the only way feminism can really be lived out to its full potential is to have no kids and not to be married and focus exclusively on just a career. And how many women come to that point in their early to late 40s and early 50s and realized I may have accomplished much career-wise, but I feel a great void in my life because I don't have kids, I don't have a husband, I don't have a family. The family is breaking apart. And this is not news to any of us. And, of course, it's great news. The rate of divorce has dropped significantly. But, unfortunately, there's a hidden truth in that. The rate of people who actually get married has dropped precipitously. People are just shacking up. We'll just hang out together. We'll cohabitate, which is really interesting because the biggest proponents of cohabitation are men. They get their milk without having to pay for it. So essentially what they do, if they decide that they're tired, they just think, well, you know, I'm just, it's just not for me and I'm going to move on. Yet the wife oftentimes or the woman is often left with the responsibility of children that come to pass during that period. This is a huge social crisis. In fact, in the African-American community, 70% of the kids are, grow up without a father in the home. And then we wonder why there's inner city crime The secondly, uh, what I call the compulsiveness of our culture. We have a culture that says your worth is based solely on what you can achieve and what you can acquire. And so there's a kind of drivenness. In fact, uh, one article in Psychology Today said the desire to be viewed as a winner, the determination to be in control at all costs is isolating us from each other and keeping us from interdependency with our family members and friends. In other words, to get ahead, we're perpetually in competition, even with our own family members. And again, we have to be winners. We can't show that we're not so great, we're not so wonderful. It's even in the, in the church and even in ministry, I find that there is such an idea of status and celebrity and proving what we've done and how far we've gone and what we've accomplished that there's just this, the idea of decreasing that he might increase doesn't even sound like it's part of the biblical context, and yet it is. And then there's the issue of what I call the monogamy of media. We may live in a a, a culture that is pluralistic and, and basically almost incestuous and rebellious in its behavior, but nonetheless, we are monogamous. We have a singular commitment towards media. I was shocked to find out that the average American today spends nine and a half hours every day staring at a screen. Whether it's your phone, whether it's a computer, computer uh, uh, whether it's your iPad, or whether it's your TV set, nine and a half hours of your life. Are st- I have in mind, it tells me how many hours I spend looking at my, my, my phone every day, just my phone. I'm not telling you how long it is because I was embarrassed when I saw it. I thought, I spent that many hours staring at this thing? It reminds me of something Janis Joplin said, a song she was writing shortly before her own death when she said after a concert, I just made love to 25,000 people, but I'm going home alone. In other words, she had the adoration of a crowd of 25,000 cheering and dancing with her and yet she said at the end, I just go go home alone. Nobody that I can truly call my friend, no one who is really a lover of my soul. See, what's gotten lost both in our modern culture and I think to some degree even within the church because as we often, I like to point out, we are not so, so removed from our culture as we like to think we are. That it influences us, it seeps in through the cracks and the fissures of our life in ways and it flavors our, our, our every thought, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we behave, the, the way we choose to do the things that we do. It, it affects us 24 seven more today than it's ever had in, in the history of the world. But even in the church, what's created is, is what gets lost is the idea that God created us for this community. That when Paul uses, or excuse me, Luke uses this word to describe the church over and over again, together, 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 together. That the idea of being vitally connected was part of what God did. Because as Jesus said in John 13, he says, men will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. That's the thing that's gonna stand out. They're going to look at you and say, these people shouldn't like each other, but in fact they love each other, sacrifice and serve and give themselves to each other, not because the other person is deserving or is even particularly attractive. They just have this passion to be involved with other people's lives. We see this from the earliest pages of the Bible. When Genesis describes the creation, he repeats seven times in that first chapter that everything that God did was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, and he ends by saying, it was very good with one exception. In verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. That God didn't make you to be singular. He didn't create you to go off and, and live in a, a cabin some way out in, in, in the Alaska wilderness. I mean, I, I, I watch those shows sometimes, you know, on those reality shows. These guys are living in Alaska, living off the land, <clears throat> and I realize that they don't really. <laughs> they need other people, and they rejoice in fact, I thought, how isolated and reclusive are they when they've got television cameras falling around everywhere they go? <laughs> Pretending like they're in danger, right? <laughs> Reality TV is so unreal, I, I don't know how they get away with calling it that. But God saw in Adam, after he created him, a deficit, not a deficit that surprised him, it wasn't like God said, oh, I overlooked something, but he said, I created you with this deficit, this need to have this vital connection with another person. That essentially, he takes the bone out of Adam's side. And, and that, of course, is instructive. Many of you have heard this before, it's nothing new, but the idea that he didn't take it out of her head, or out of his head so that he could lord it over her. He didn't take it out of his foot so he could stand on top of her, he took it out of his side. And he describes her as being a helpmeet or literally a counterpart. That she is to be basically a companion and a complement the way, same way that a counterpart is something that supplies what's lacking in another, kind of like a cogwheels that work together. A cogwheel by itself does nothing but spin, but when it is engaged in exactly the opposite way, it works in beautiful harmony and accomplishes many things. And so it is that God says, you know, I've made men and women exactly the same in opposite ways. So that what she has will fill what he lacks and what he has will fill what she lacks. So that the two he describes finally says, I make them one. I make them one. Yet sin quickly began to destroy that oneness, didn't it? Then right in the heels of their sinfulness we find that Adam blames Eve for everything going wrong. Eve blames the servant. Eventually, Cain murders Abel, and everything begins to go downhill so that very quickly we see in human society the same kind of problems we have today. There's divisions over race, over ethnicity, over culture, over language, over power, over economics, over education. We find this myriad of things to point to and say, well, this is that way, and because of this, and you're wrong, and I'm right, and this is good, and that's bad. And yet at the end of the day what happens is we find ourselves still yearning to be part of a place where everybody knows your name and they're always glad to see you. Even if it becomes a gang or a gulag, we choose to be together because being alone is the worst torture of all. That's why oftentimes when people ask me how I understand God's judgment of hell where people will go, I think that the, the, description that he gives that's most terrifying to me is that you will be there by yourself. When when some people have said to me, "Well, I want to go to hell where all my friends are," I said, "They may be there, but you'll never be with them." It's outer darkness. It's total and complete lowness, unable to touch anybody. When we go to Jerusalem and watch walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, this 1,500 foot tunnel that runs under 100 feet underneath solid rock. That brought the water course into the city to the pool of Siloam. It's always fun to go in there, and when you get right in the middle of it, where you just, it's rock channel and there's no light at all, and have everybody turn off their flashlights. And I say, because this is a moment in which you can feel total darkness. It's eerie because you can have somebody right next to you and you can't see them, you can't sense them, you can't touch them. And hell is like that place where you'll spend it forever. You don't want God's love, that's right. You don't want his light, that's okay. You don't want his truth, then, then you can have what you want. All that you don't want, you won't get. And what you'll get is what's left. And what's left is nothing. Nothing. Just the forever lonely torment, the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Not other people's wailing, not other people's teeth, your teeth, your wailing, your gnashing. Forever and ever and ever alone. It's not surprising that we, (laughs) we struggle with that idea of aloneness. On understanding that some people are more relationally oriented than others, they say 12% of the population are gregarious, you know, they they get energized by being around people, and and we know people like that. We have people in our family like that. You know, there's some people that they just always wanna be around other people and interacting with them, love talking and interacting with other people because they get energized. And then on the other hand, there's another 12% that they like people, but they get exhausted by them as well. You know, I can take people for a while, but I just gotta go off and kinda recharge my batteries by being alone. It doesn't mean they don't like people, but that's just the way they're wired. Most of us are someplace in the middle there. But the idea of being completely and totally alone is not only depressing, it's terrifying. So that sometimes we just want to be around other people. Even if it means for oftentimes with the elderly, we see them going and just sitting in the mall and you wonder why would you do this? And they'll tell you many times, just so I can hear the sound of other voices and be around people. Like the gentleman who went to the barber and he came in once a week and the barber said to him, he said, you don't have to come once a week, your hair doesn't grow that fast. And he says, well, I don't come for my hair. This is the only time I feel the touch of another person when you cut my hair. You see, this is something that's hardwired in you. It's not something you can kind of learn to deal with or get over. This is is who we are. In fact, one of the things that David said about God, understanding his dynamic, he said that he is a, in Psalm 68, he's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God sets the lonely in families and he leads forth the prisoner with singing, but the rebellious he leaves in a sun-scorched land. A sun-scorched land. What is a sun-scorched land? It's, it's a place that's arid and lifeless and fruitless. It's what the Bible referred to as wilderness, not a place with big pine trees and, and grizzly bears. That's our wilderness. Their wilderness is a place where there was nothing. It was a lifeless place. And he says that those who, who aren't in family, they're not in that community, they become arid. They become, there's a lifelessness. There's a lack of fruitfulness in their life because you and I cannot be fruitful in the way in which God designed us to be fruitful unless we're fruitful in relationship to other people. It's impossible to say that we love people when we have no contact with them, no meaningful contact. See, community is like this singular work of the Holy Spirit so that in Psalm 133, David went on and said how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity for there, is, there the Lord bestows his blessing. It's in that community interaction that God says, that's where I bestow my blessing. Not in some isolated experience. When people say, you know, I, I like to go off into the wilderness that I can just be alone with God. And I think, well, that's great. But what good does it do if that's all you do? The reality is most of us don't do that. What we do is we isolate ourselves in different ways. We isolate ourselves in our busyness, in our screening, in our vicarious lifestyle of watching things happen on a TV set or on a computer or whatever. You know, we got 900 Facebook friends who don't know who we are and all they have is that fake picture that you put up from high school It's no surprise that one of the very first things that grew out of the birth of the church was a completely unique social construct. It was really a new way of doing community. When it says uh, all the believers were together and had everything in common, They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The phrase again, together, 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 over and over again. There were no buildings, there were no budgets, there were no bands, there was no causes, no campaigns, there were no crusades. There was just Christ and the community that organically grew up around him just Jesus and the supernatural unity that he promises to create when he said in Matthew 18, 20, when two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. That when we gather together in community, whether it's two or three people or it's many more like today, the reality is he says, I promise that I'm right here with you. I promise that I will be present in your midst and I'll touch you, and it's, even though we'd say, yeah, well, isn't God with me all the time? Yes, he is, but the sense of his presence is more powerful when it's experienced within the communion and the community of saints and not simply living our lives in isolation. The early church's identity was no longer in the kind of things we identify with. It wasn't their position. It wasn't in a program. It wasn't in their pay grade, there was no special liturgy or religious gar- jargon, no secret handsakes or special underwear they had to wear. There was just Jesus, there was just Jesus. And as they followed Jesus, they intuitively began to adopt certain fundamental behaviors that inherently build community. He listed them for us when basically the first thing he says to them is save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The word corrupt there is a Greek word scolios, where we get a scoliosis, you know, crooked spine. He's saying it's it's not that the culture is all bad, but it says basically it's got a it's got a wrong bent to it. Every culture that isn't Christ-centered has a long bent to it because it's all about what the culture can do for me and how I can scale the ladder of my culture. How can I ascend the ladder of success culturally and in this place and make my mark in the world? It defines it in different ways in different places. When I was growing up, it was a new car in your own home, and if you had those things, then you had made it. Now today, it may not be a lot different, but it may be very different. But we have these kind of things that we set as being the standards or the measuring sticks that we use to say, okay, my life is successful, and suddenly they step back from it. Part of that idea of repenting is to rethink. The word repent means to think about it differently, to to reinterpret the, the data and come to different conclusions. And the conclusion they came to is the culture is always bent in the wrong direction. The arrows always point in the wrong way. They are completely horizontal when God says, no, you need to have a vertical orientation. You need to be focusing upon the heavenly. In a way, that's why we say we need to be separated from our culture. We need to no longer be mesmerized and and fantasized within our cultural context and dream the dreams of the culture dreams. That oftentimes we have a celebrity culture that holds up people as being icons, which is kind of interesting because on one hand, when we look at these people, we know simply by reading People magazine that their lives are a train wreck. And yet, we still want to be like them. Why? Uh, it's a puzzling thing, isn't it? What is it that, that draws us? And he says part of really making that difference, you have to begin by saying, you know what? This doesn't work. That, that, that's, that structure out there doesn't work. Especially when you see a culture deteriorating to a place where, as Paul said, if you bite and devour one another, won't you be consumed of one another? We live in that kind of adversarial, conflicted culture, where not only is the rhetoric becoming violent, but even the actions are becoming increasingly violent. And we sit there saying, "What's going wrong?" There, there's a brokenness in our culture, an inherent brokenness, and the solution ultimately won't be in the ballot box. The solution's going to be when the church decides it's going to be the church and not just a a mini-me of the culture, kind of like a a polished-up, shiny version of the rest of society. We've got our celebrities, but they don't smoke, as far as we know. But secondly, it said they... Instead of devoting themselves to the culture, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. This word devote is interesting. Proskitario in Greek literally means to attend constantly to, to persevere, and to adhere to something. I mean, in other words, this became the focus. They began to focus their life on what? They they began to focus their life on the things that the apostles had to say, the teaching, we might say, to simply get today to God's word. They began to let God's word be the the thing that formed their value system. It, It formed their objectives and how they wanted to live their life. And they began to say, this is how God says I should live. I want to focus on that. Then I want to focus on the fellowship or that familiar word koinonia. Really, the word koinonia is so hard to define because it means a lot of things, but essentially what it represents is the idea of an interconnectedness between people. That people became allowed themselves to be connected with other people in meaningful ways so that life happened amongst them, not without them or outside of them. Thirdly, they've devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Literally, that sounds strange to us, but what that means in a Middle Eastern culture is you're doing life together. We start doing life together. We, we, I think, even like this, our, our thing that we do for uh, the uh, Thanksgiving Spokane thing. You know, it's, it's a crazy thing, but it's such a wonderful experience because we all come together, or many of us, and we do this together. We do the Feed the Youth programs and all these different things that we're involved in. We do these things together and we're doing life together saying how can we live out our Christianity together in a way that makes a difference? Even as I was praying with the ministry team this morning and all the ushers and greeters and everything, I thought to myself, how in the world could we function without all these people? It works because we do it together. It was so much nicer to say, Would the ushers come over and receive the tithes and offerings instead of me having to walk up to each one of you with a cup? (laughs) Give in the name of Jesus. (laughs) But last of all, there was prayer, but not just prayer for themselves, it was prayer for one another. They became so engaged and involved in each other's lives that they could pray for one another, and they, they knew the things that were on each other's heart and life. I have to confess that so many years, my prayer life concerned with, with what I was doing and what was going on in my life. And it was quite a shift in my wife and I's life when we began to dedicate our prayer times every day to praying for, Every single person and thing that we, we could imagine that comes on our list, that so many of you have, have come with prayer requests, and they end up, we end up praying about them because we've seen the miracles and the power of God. But there's something wonderful because Jesus kind of said to us in the sermon, that he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Don't, don't worry about those kind of things because I know you have need of those things and I'll take care of them. Yet most of us spend almost all of our prayer time praying for those things. Lord, give me money for the rent. God, give me this, 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 and that. And we spend all of our prayer time with that when the fact, Jesus said, don't worry about it. I will take care of it. You should start your prayer by saying, thank you, God, that I know you're gonna take care of these things that I don't have the resources to meet right now. I thank you for it in advance. and I praise your holy name. Now, let's get down to other issues. God, so-and-so is sick. So-and-so has this issue. So-and-so is struggling this year. So-and-so going through bankruptcy. And you start praying for these things, and it's amazing because what you see happening is God doing miracles. <laughs> the greatest encouragement in my life is seeing how God answers prayers that my wife and I have prayed for you and your situations. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing when we, we uphold one another in that way. That so often we even turn these four things into kind of a self-focused thing, that they, uh, you know the teaching, uh, my teaching and, and my fellowship and my breaking of bread and my prayer, when he says, no, these are things that we become devoted to as a way of sustaining the rest. That's why thirdly, it's, it's, uh, he says, and every day they continue to meet together. And later on he says, all the believers were together. This word homothomadon in Greek is is a really unique word in the Greek language because it appears 10 times in the book of Acts. Only two other times in the rest of the New Testament, but 10 times in the book of Acts. It's translated many times as being of one mind or being of one cord or having one passion. It's really a compound of two Greek words which means to rush along and to do it in unison. It's the idea that you're rushing forward in unison with a group of people. In other words, it's the idea that we start living our life together. It's, it's almost a musical term, the idea that there may be many different notes, but they harmonize together to, to create a beautiful symphony that other people can listen to and enjoy. This was a choir, in other words. The church was a choir. It, it wasn't a, a solo artist doing their own thing. <laughs> they weren't a group of people who were obsessed with finding themselves or discovering who they really were. Fortunately, they didn't have Ancestry.com, or 23andMe, and all those kind of things to be able to focus even more intently on their self. What makes me unique? My father kind of dispelled that from my, in my childhood when he said he did a, he did a, a uh, <clears throat> background on a, a genealogical study in his relatives, and he said I could go trace it all the way back to, to the Basque Country where we came from originally, but he said, the last ancestor I found was hung for stealing a horse. So he said, you come from good stock. <laughs> I wear that with such pride. <laughs> they were living a life not that was independent from the culture, which made the culture stand apart. And the culture says, how can you function without depending on us? And yet, they did it because they were in, they were interdependent upon one another. They depended upon each other rather than depending upon the culture. That's where their identity was derived. was it the community of believers, not from some organization or any other thing that they might you know, put their mark on. And the fourth thing I would say, that you know going back again is that they not only separated from the culture, they not only devoted to following. The apostles and their teaching and the community they were part of. And they not only became vitally connected, but last of all, they were generous to a fault. It said they had everything in common and they gave to everyone as he had need. So often, unfortunately, the focus has been upon well, they sold everything and they gave it to what as if that was what was really required. Eventually, Paul had to bring offerings from the Greeks and Corinth and other places because once the property was sold and everything was gone, they were impoverished. They were, you know, I think that you know, some people speculate that they were so con- convinced that Christ was going to come within the next couple of weeks, they didn't really worry about anything. It probably would have been healthier if they would have done something to sustain the income so that they could go forward, but they became impoverished. And so I put it that way, in a way they were generous to a fault, and yet at the same time that generosity was so rewarding because they no longer felt like it's every man for himself. They felt like we're in this together. And when they saw a need in someone, they reached out to meet that need. One of the results of that, and that's why I think this is really important, because all these things are behavioral things that, that, I, that I think that we need to focus on, but we do it for a reason... In fact, that's why he lastly said to us that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, we're not told that they had an evangelistic program. They they didn't have the Roman road. They didn't enforce spiritual laws. I, I don't know how they managed to witness to anybody but they simply lived out their life in such an exemplary way in such a powerful way that there were people who simply said I want to be part of that. I'm one of those lonely people that God that needs to be put into a family. And when you recognize that this is really at the root of a lot of people's issues, they, they may not even want it to argue or discuss evolution versus creationism or the Trinity or some other far-flung theological issue. Not that those things are unimportant. They are vitally important. But when you get down to what is it that really is hurting on the inside of people, and as our former Surgeon General said, it's, a, it's an epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic that is driving some 30,000 of our neighbors every year to kill themselves, most of them teenagers and young adults, because they become hopeless and despairing and feel like there's nothing out there for me. Life becomes meaningful when you have something to live for. And the main thing is that if living your life doesn't connect somehow vitally with other people, it, it, it loses everything as I get older, you know, and there's not a lot of T's that I feel like I have to cross in my life or I's that I have to dot I don't really feel like this pressing need to prove or accomplish anything or be anything or whatever I find that what's really vital to me are, are the relationships in my life that's really what matters When my grandkids were with us this last week, I mean, it was just, uh, thankfully their parents were there because I couldn't have dealt with it. It had been just on my shoulders. That's why I told my wife, you're better at this. You take care of them. But you know, it's, it's, uh, once the chaos leaves our home and we start trying to put it all back together, it may be neater and it may be quieter, but you feel the void of that relationship. You feel the void of that relationship. It's interesting that when we talk about the fragment of the family, something we don't often talk about, but it's partly, clearly uh, key to it all is abortion. There are 60 million plus kids that aren't here today, adults that aren't here today because they were, their lives were terminated prematurely. In uh, China, they have managed since they came up with their uh, one child per family policy to uh, abort 360 million kids. And it's had some really serious uh, societal implications because not only do they find that there's a shortage of of laborers actually But what they find is that as families age, these parents who once used to be supported in their old age by their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids, now you find that they had one child and that one child may have four adult parents who are uh, aged who need caring for and they don't have the resources, the time and the energy to do it so they find that there are literally millions of men and women who live by themselves without any family support and they're, they're, they're just dying of isolation and loneliness. Ironically, there's an American ministry that's going to China, reaching out to these women because the last thing a society like China can admit is that they did anything wrong or made any mistake. Although they have gotten rid of the one child, now they say you can have two. Whoopee. But you see, there's a way that seems right to a man, and yet Solomon said, but the end it turns into destruction. And that's why, when we look at the society, and we, we say, well, all its values and the things that says are so important and tells us to strive for, it. and so we believe it and we do it because it's basically the common knowledge. People say, well, this is common sense, and we pursue after it. And then one day we look back and say, why is it that I feel lonely? Why does I feel unfulfilled? Why does I feel unsatisfied? Why is it that people pursue careers and they do it by climbing over the parts of other people's bodies and when they get to the top, they find they're there all by themselves, unliked, unloved, unwanted, unfavored? Why is it that so many famous celebrities crave isolation, sink into alcoholism and drug abuse and go through fractured marriages and families and all these kind of things? Why is this happening? It's because... We believed the lies of our culture and yet in the church we find it so difficult for us to really be together because the idea of that closeness, that that honesty that's required, that truthfulness is too frightening. Too often as Christians we're afraid to admit how wretched we are. We want to pretend that we're squeaky clean, and we don't do those kind of things. I'll tell you what I know, without really knowing it. I know that every Sunday when people walk in here, that you may be smiling, you may be scrubbed and clean, and maybe even throw a little foo-foo water on to make you smell good to the people around you. But a lot of you are in deep pain. A lot of you feel really isolated and alone. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like you have no place to turn, that nobody cares about what happens to you, that if you could fall off the end of the earth and nobody would miss you, you're about as important as a like or a friend on Facebook. But if you're really up against it, you don't have anybody you could call and say, can you pray for me? Could you just sit with me? How do we change that? Well, we <clears throat> reject the culture and its view and we begin to devote ourselves to the things that God says are vitally important. That being here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or being involved with children's ministry or youth ministry or any of these things isn't something that's just a you know, secondary thing that if you got the time for it, you might fit it in there. The average American today now feels that if they come to church once a month, they're a regular attender because their lives are so filled with other things that sports has become uh, that one of the major distractions that essentially parents don't even realize what you're saying to your kids is that your athletic goals are more important than your spiritual goals. And so it's all right to skip church because this is secondary. And yet, do not all of us feel that when we haven't read the word, when we haven't been under the word, when we haven't been under the teaching of the word and so forth, that something has been missed in our life? That our spiritual diet may be high in sugars but not much nutrition? I'm out of time. They gave me a Fitbit that would buzz so I would quit on time. crazy idea. I'll throw it away. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would take the things that I've shared and expressed and anything that I put out there, Lord, that is just my personal opinion, I pray that you'd help these people just to junk it and move on to what really matters. But at the end of the day, Lord, we know that you've called us to live this life together and, and we're often trying to figure out ways mechanically to structure it, to formulize it, to... <laughs> to create an agenda to make it happen when in fact it's something that you want to happen rather spontaneously just like you did in the early church. That as we desire to spend time with you and we begin to realize that there's a value of spending time with you with other people who are spending time that this becomes this profound experience of sharing our lives together and we start doing life together. We start praying for one another and caring for each other. Lord, There's just something powerfully and profoundly dynamic that nobody can stand back and say, this is the program that I created so other people would do the things that I think they should do. But rather, it's this thing that your spirit does so mysteriously and yet so wonderfully and so completely and competently that the people around us look and say, I want to have what you have. Not only the faith and the peace, but I want to be part of a family of people who... Love me just the way I am. Lord, we pray for this grace. We pray for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.